Welcome to The Airwave, West Yorkshire Internal Medicine Teaching Collaborative Podcasts, in association with Airedale General Hospital and Bradford Royal Infirmary, a Chief Registrar Programme Initiative. Today's podcast is led by Dr. Miriam Jasson Walker and is a two part podcast discussing the IMT curriculum, the ARCP process, and how to nail your portfolio. Hello everyone, my name is Miriam. I'm one of the IMT1 doctors working at Airedale General Hospital currently. So on today's podcast, we're going to be talking about the portfolio, the lovely portfolio, and some tips and tricks to how to meet the requirements that you need for ARCP. So we're going to focus this mainly towards IMT1s. It is very similar across the board. We will, of course, mention the differences. But first of all, I'd like to introduce the two of the people who are on the podcast with me. So Chloe. Hi, I'm Chloe Cherry. I'm a IMT2 at Bradford Royal Infirmary currently. And Mark? Yeah, so my name's Mark. I'm the Chief Registrar at Airedale General Hospital, and I was uh, till recently an IMT3, well, recently, about six months ago now, was an IMT3. So I've gone through the whole process. I like to think I know it to some extent, so hopefully I'll be able to add some insight as someone who's got to the end of internal medicine training to provide my perspective on the matter. Perfect. So anyone who has done F1 and F2 in the UK will be very familiar with HORUS. That's the previous portfolio. And what we're going to talk about is the NHS e-portfolio that we use for IMT. So largely, there are a lot of similarities between what people have done for F1 and F2, but we're going to go through the differences. So one of the similarities is obviously making sure that you've got your educational supervisor and your meetings. Chloe, how have you found sort of nailing down your supervisor and making sure they're available for meetings? I think a little bit more complicated than maybe it should be. I don't think I was particularly blessed with a supervisor that was that easy to contact, unfortunately. Um, but no, due to no fault other than that he was mostly a research physician, so did very little clinical work. And actually, I never worked directly with my educational supervisor. But I do know, obviously, other people that have had placements with their supervisor and you know you, you that's way more helpful I think working directly with them than uh, and building like a rapport that way rather than just meetings that are like every now and then quite sporadic. He was very receptive to email and all the meetings that we had arranged he met and we all we had them you know they all worked out. Perfect. Yeah. And um, one thing that I've recently noted is that there's a um, an interim checklist that actually isn't mentioned on the decision aid that they do like you to complete. The um, the deanery has emailed this through, so it's not like we we would have missed it or anything. But yeah, so just just something else to note as well. One thing I will say about the interim checklist is a little bit variable in terms of how it's completed, and you tend to find that a lot of stuff won't be on there already because you've not had much time. You're five months, mm-hmm. six months in, and someone's asking you where you are with regards to mini and CBDs, your MSF. A lot of that stuff won't be built in yet. So the interim checklist is useful to some extent to give you a bit of a reminder about where you should be aiming for, but it's probably not the most useful component. Or certainly I didn't find it useful during my time as an IMT. Yeah, and I think obviously you spend like the first few months kind of getting your feet that ground, don't you? And like getting to know the hospital and the consultants that you're working with. I think that time is built getting 
to grips about how stuff. And then I think all of a sudden they're telling you you need to have done half the stuff or even maybe more than half because your ARCP is going to be in like early June. You know, you need to have had all this stuff kind of done. And you're like, oh, gosh, there's so much left for me to do. I would just say just don't panic about it. It comes with that time of building it into your everyday practice of like once you're a bit more settled, I think. I think those first few months you don't really do a vast amount for your portfolio not for any reason other than i think it just you're just not as easy to do because once you you don't know who's receptive or you don't know how to ask and you get a bit more comfortable with people don't you i think that's in, and one thing i would say is in my experience a lot of people ramp up their portfolio so you'll find that the first four months will be reasonably quiet and then you might find that the second rotation you get a little bit more educational content done but actually on the third rotation that's when things really tend to accelerate and that's because generally people want a bit of opportunity to get to know a system first and know which yeah. consultants will be receptive to educational work. There are some consultants who you'll find you may work with more often who actually are not the best people to be providing educational supervision in the sense of CBDs, mini kexes, all of which we'll talk about. It takes time to, to learn that about each hospital. So expecting, you know, to have three or four mini kexes done the first week is not reasonable. But when you find that person who you start to get on with and you know you can ask those questions to, you'll find that that slope is logarithmic and goes off quite quickly. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Moving on to our general capabilities in practice or SIPs. So this was quite similar to, um, again, comparing it to Horus, the kind of points that you needed to hit. Um, so, Chloe, how did you feel about mapping your learning events and, and other parts of your portfolio to these? I think I was quite lucky in that I'd already think I'd mapped quite a lot in my foundation years. I think they, I think you still do the kind of mapping process, don't you, in the foundation years? I just really, every time I submitted something, whether it was a mini kex, a CBD, or a reflection, I looked through what it fit with and I tagged one to three things, depending on what it was. Um, and I did it for every single thing that I did. And therefore, some things had a lot tagged to it. Some things didn't have much. And then towards the last, towards the end, when I was like going to ARCP, I then looked at which bits were missing and specifically tried to find things that I could do for that, come up with ideas, even if it was just a specific reflection on that area and like something I'd learned or seen and then tried to map it to that. So it's about recognising where those gaps are, but I think doing it right from the beginning, every time you submit something, just tagging it. I completely agree with that. And I think I know a couple of people who actually don't do any of the tagging until they get to just before ARCP, which personally I think is my field. Oh, waving I, 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 I'm certainly that person. And that's <laughs> one, of the, one of the things is that there's, there's several different ways of dealing with this. And Chloe's mentioning probably the safer and more common way. But as someone who I tend to get quite involved in my clinical work and just like focusing on that component, one of the challenges for me is actually getting that stuff done on a weekly basis. And actually, because of your on-call schedule, that can be even more of a challenge. I did sit down and do a majority of it in the two to three weeks leading up to the ARCP or to the, the end date, that final date. They give you where they want everything submitting. But I knew I was working towards certain clinical capabilities and generic capabilities that I needed. What you'll find is by virtue of being in the environment, a lot of this stuff will happen organically. You just need to be making sure you're aware of what you're doing. 
and putting it into some degree of context. And some of them are really challenging. So we're talking about the generic capabilities. There used to be a component about engaging with research. I'm not sure if that's still the case, but that's a very hard thing to prove for a majority of internal medicine trainees, particularly in year one and year two, where you're unlikely to be dealing with research unless you're in a specific job that enables that. So actually being aware that's there and using one of the most powerful tools from my perspective was e-learning for health portal and being able to show that the things you couldn't meet, you were doing some e-learning on, was perhaps the most useful component. And you can still link your accounts via the NHS e-portfolio to your e-learning for health account. So that if there is something you're missing out on, be it some learning that you feel you should have had, or there's a clinical or generic capability that you're missing out on, you can go and do the learning and demonstrate that and reflect on it. So they're useful to be aware of, but I don't think you have to, my perspective was you don't have to be day by day, but that shows you how different people deal with the same problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah, ultimately, as long as you've got enough map to everything and you can evidence it all, I guess it doesn't matter how you do it. Um, I guess it just depends on personality types. The other key thing to say here is that your educational supervisor is going to go through them. And in a reality, when it comes to the ARCP panel, one of the things that really is going to master them is what the educational supervisor thought of your progress. Your perspective is probably less important. They want to know what an educational supervisor has thought of your development. So what you're trying to do in a way is sell your portfolio initially to your educational supervisors. They're going to go, well, yes, you, you are meeting these generic and clinical capabilities. And the evidence shows that. So I can just leave that as either meeting expectations or above expectations. Then when it comes to ARCP panel come June, July, it's just tick boxing saying, yes, someone said that. It's all good. Yeah. And I think obviously I can only speak for our deanery, um, which is Yorkshire and Humber, um, but also the mandatory teaching sessions, um, I find link really nicely. I mean, obviously they're designed to link to our sets that we've got. So I also think that, yeah, that's an absolutely brilliant thing to just making sure that all of those sessions that you attend, making sure that you're linking them to the appropriate points. And there's a broader point, and that's one of the benefits of IMT. There are lots of issues of internal medicine training in terms of how it's orchestrated. But at least what you get at the end of it is, by virtue of the programme being taught the way it is, you meet all the capabilities that are discussed, rather than trying to go through that in a a way around IMT, which more trainings are trying to do, to prove that you've sat and listened to lots of research content is a very hard thing to do. The IMT curriculum does that through the regional teaching. So it's actually a good point for IMT. Yeah, I was just having a look actually at mine from last year, my portfolio, and seeing what I had in that category. And actually the the statement itself is carrying out research and managing data. So I used my QIP because obviously most of the time, any quip involves managing some data of some kind, even if it's, you know, a subjective report or something. I used that and then I did like a reflection on, I think, a teaching, the research teaching that we'd had from. And your, and your quality improvement project can go into that. If it's management yeah. of data, that's exactly. a big component of quality improvement projects. So there are, there's lots of ways you can, you can square that circle. Yeah. Okay. So moving on to our multiple consultant reports. For IMT1, they want a minimum of four, one of which, it says this a little bit lower down, that needs to be done by a elderly consultant. I'm not yeah. quite sure why they've specified an elderly consultant. That's part of your proof of your geriatric placement. Right, I see. So that's it's, more it's for one of the mandated elderly care. Blocks, isn't it? Yeah. Same for ICU? 
it's not I don't think it's mandated in the same way because you should be able to prove by virtue of being on placement. But I'm I'm pretty sure there's a a similar expectation, although it may not be as formalized in the sense of that you need to have an MCR to prove it. In reality, you want an MCR to show you'd been in the intensive care environment. So it's not mandated in the same way as it is for geriatrics, but it is still something that you would ideally have to show you've been in that environment and done well in that environment. Did either of you two struggle to get those or was it was it fairly straightforward? I was very lucky. I had really nice geriatricians and my, yeah, my, my, my consultants on my ward were great and they filled lots of forms in for me. It's again, it, it, for me, it comes down to there are certain consultants you will find are very good at filling out forms and certain consultants who you will have to drag to their computer and sit yeah. them down to get them to do a form. And that's one of the challenges is that not everyone, everyone gets scheduled some educational time. Well, not, that's not true anymore, really, but everyone should have the time to do this, but we're all very busy. And some of that is about making it as easy as possible for people to sign forms off. So even presenting them on the day, um, not so much for MCRs, because obviously that's a bit more difficult, but mini kits and CBDs, taking the form physically to people would always work slightly better. I found it as a very variable depending on the consultants. I would normally know beforehand which consultant I was going to get to sign it because I knew what they were like with signing things on the e-portfolio. So it is a bit challenging sometimes, but generally speaking, you, you know who you need to target, and it's just a case of targeting them regularly and getting them to fill the form out. Yeah, I would also highlight that the MCR has lots of different areas to it. So I have had issues before where, not issues, where a consultant was like, I feel like I need to spend more time with you before they can fill it in so it does I think need to be someone that you kind of regularly work with which obviously makes it more complex but hopefully you're doing a whole block on elderly hopefully that gives you the time to to do that I think it's more more difficult sometimes then with the other consultants getting the MCRs because you might not see the consultants very often ever again like in your other placements you might they might do like a week on and then they might have eight weeks where they're not doing any clinical work depending on what you're doing so it's about kind of early on in that week maybe with the consultant if you're there for the whole week it's like highlighting this is a form that I need filling in by the end can we do things together during the week to so you know me there's an important caveat here, which is something that came unstuck at one of my ARCPs, is that it can't be one of your educational supervisors, which is actually something that most will slip most people's mind, because, again, it's on the page break, as is very good on this gold guide, but everything's on a page break. But in reality, your educational supervisor may provide you clinical supervision, and that's actually increasingly common because the amount of people willing to do supervision is reducing. So if your education supervisor is also your clinical supervisor, you may have more problems there. Certainly that was the case for me. The In terms of getting MCRs, it's two per rotation is the upshot of it in terms of before ARCP. So it should not be a significant problem. And if you work in the acute environment, I know certainly it's the case now, hospital, you should be able to form relationships with a consultant that are good enough to facilitate that. So one of them could be one of your acute medical consultants who you work with on call, and a second can be your dedicated consultant clinical supervisor for that environment. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so I think the takeaway from that is just make sure that you pick your consultants wisely and make sure they know you enough. Um, yeah. 
and make sure you, you get enough by the end of the year, really. And they're not your educational supervisor. And that's, not your you know, so that, that's something that's so much slipped, not, not just to me, I know, but slipped to other people. Something to be aware of. Definitely. Okay, so moving on to multi-source feedback, the infamous MSS that everyone sends around to each other. Requirements for this is you need a minimum of 12 different raters. So you need three consultants and you also need a mixture of medical and non-medical staff. In terms of the time frame you need, it needs to be within three months um, and ideally within the same placement. And then ultimately your ES has to um, has to release those for you before you can see them. For me, I actually struggled to get the number of consultants and it's not that they wouldn't agree to do it. It's actually signing them. It's having to kind of, oh, please, can you sign this form that I sent you last week? Um, And it took a little bit of of coaxing and reminding people. But other than that, um, it wasn't a problem. Personally, I quite like to see them relatively early just so they're done. So it's not something that's hanging over your head. But how do you feel about it, Chloe? Yeah, I agree. I think getting it done as early in the first block. I think, I think actually it's a good thing to do in your first block when you don't know many people, but you get, you're trying to get to know everybody. And then by the end, you actually feel like you've part of a team. That's what, you know, you do, it's like that you takes that two months to get settled and then three months to actually feel like you're doing okay and then the fourth month you kind of feel like oh i actually know what i'm doing and then you move on um and then so i think i, I would add to me miriam did you not send me one about two months into the rotation <laughs> if yeah, I, I remember properly yeah. i'd worked with you a decent amount by that point i know but yeah. i mean that's the thing is people do it in different speeds so i mm-hmm. i was told and i think it was the way at foundation was generally speaking you would wait till the end of your first rotation to do it but i was then i was then told by my educational supervisor to do it on the second rotation going into the third which made it a bit more tight something that we know about the mss is that in reality if there are problems it won't be on the msf it'll be somewhere yeah. else because you're not going to ask people who you like who like you for feedback so those are the people you're going to ask you are not going to ask people who you think will give you bad feedback for feedback and that is one of the issues with the multi-source feedback is it's multiple sources, but sources you're choosing. So in that way, if you get to build rapport with someone early and you feel that they would give you feedback, which is appropriate for you, why why wait? Might as well get started. But the MSF problem is is partly due to who you pick. And because you get full say, you get to choose in many ways the feedback that you're here to. And it's one. It's only one during the course of the whole yeah, so it shouldn't be that hard to do. And if you get three months, you can split it over two rotations. So that was what I certainly did for my IMT2 MSF and my IMT3 MSF was wait till I was switching rotations. I got a good relationship with the nurses on one ward. The consultants would then move if I needed extra numbers. But in reality, I'd expect the previous rotation to have fully completed the MSF. So I didn't need any further raters. I do think it's important to stress, Mark, that make sure that you do pick people that you have a good rapport with. Um, I do yeah. know people who have just sent, sent them, out blindly, sent them out blindly to people yeah. and have had some less than positive results back, meaning that they needed to just redo the whole thing. So, yeah, I think I think it sounds like a given, but I think if you don't don't think it through as much that you don't realise the impact it can actually have. Um, so, yeah, very important to make sure you pick carefully. Who I you a bad MSF. You know, from my own experience as an F1, a bad MSF can cause you a lot of problems. Even if you are clinically very good, if you end up with 
the NHS is a funny organisation to work in. And there may be streams of people who have opinions they will not tell you about. And it will wait for an MSF form and then land itself rather unpleasantly on your e-portfolio. So now I entirely, you know, I entirely get a point about picking the people that you know and people that you trust as well. People that you trust would give you good feedback because that's important as well. 100%. Yeah, I don't think that um, often nurses need like 360 feedback, physios and all sorts. So often, yeah. you know, you're volunteering your time to help them with theirs. They're happy to help you with yours. So. I mean, the other side of things is catch the wave is what I used to say to people is if when everyone starts doing it in your organisation, see that as the opportunity because people are much more likely if they've got a few to do, they'll sit down and do them all in one go. Whereas if you're the outlier and you suddenly do it in May, less likely to get the engagement. What you want is everyone sitting and doing them and getting emails is often part of the challenge. So actually, if you all go around to a group and say, hi, you know, I work with so-and-so on so-and-so ward, you know, they've given me their emails, they're happy. You can do it as a little bit of a group in that sense, if people are happy to give feedback. I know that's technically what not what I should say, but that's actually quite a good way of doing it, is doing it as a group. If all the IMTs are starting to do their MSF, you can be part of that wave quite safely. Yeah, brilliant. Okay, so uh, moving on to our supervised learning events and uh, acute care assessment tools, so the SLEs and ACATs. In terms of what we need for each year, they're looking for four each year specifically for for those. And we've also got the new introduction of the um, OP cat. I'm not sure what the nomenclature is, but I've been calling them op cats. Yeah. So yeah, there's quite there's quite a few. So you've got your your A cats, your op cats, your mini cats, and your CBDs as all part of those. Um, and you need four specifically ACATs and then four of the others, but specifically of the others, two OPCATs and then two mini kexes slash CBDs. So, yeah, that is, that's quite a lot to be getting on with, really. Mark, how did you find that? So the ACATs were were interesting because it is organisationally, trying to think of a good way of saying this, it depends on where you work in terms of how easy they will be to get. And if you work in an environment where it is common for the night shift to present some patients to the day shift. There's an opportunity there. But if you do a job where the night shift ends at 8 o'clock and then the post take takes on from 8, you may not get that opportunity. What I found, certain consultants dealt with this in different ways. So there was numerous times where I would just tell a consultant that I'd seen these five patients, I would like their feedback, and I will send them the form. And actually, that worked reasonably well with the right consultants that worked really well. The other thing to mention about the acute care assessment tool is it can be new patients on ward rounds outside of the acute um, admitting unit. So you can be on your respiratory ward and do a ward round of the new patients with a consultant that you vet or you see prior to them seeing and you can provide some opinion on the patient. So there are ways around it. It doesn't have to all be post-take ward rounds. Some of that can be if you have a twice weekly consultant ward round, you can see the patients on a Tuesday and a Wednesday, and you can still do a component of the ACAT when it comes to that Monday or Thursday when they would normally come on a ward round. The CBD and the Minikex was more of a challenge in some ways because it registrars, it was quite easy, consultants, it was quite difficult. And the OPCAT, I'm sure we... We ought to have a proper discussion about the OPCAT because that is a real challenge and something that will be quite difficult. And I think is quite a big expectation from the JRC PTB to have that on there at the moment. ACATs, challenging, 
doable. You've got to dedicate time to do my identifier time and a person in advance. CBDs and minicaxes with the right consultant can happen quite easily. Opcats, much more challenging. Yeah, I agree, Mark. In terms of the ACATs, I think I've done most of mine this year after a night shift, and it varies from consultant to consultant whether they wanted me to stay on and actually see the five patients and post-take them with them and then hand over the jobs. Um, or some other consultants were just happy to, to, as you said, just me give them the list of the patients um, and and just send them the form. Um, and one thing I would say to that sort of point specifically is – the consultant variation can make life quite difficult. One of my gripes about where I was working previously was I did, I stayed till half 11 doing a ACAT with one of the consultancy then did not sign it. Oh, so God. four months later, I was still chasing them to sign it. I sent them the ACAT five, six times. I said to them this, you know, I stayed very late to do this. And when we finally sat down prior to ARCP, we said, I can't remember it, so I can't sign it. And that's, no, no, this is, you know, this is one of the issues I have with IMT and part of the reason why it's important to talk about these things. You need to identify the consultants who are likely to sign stuff off. And that is, it's a really sad state of affairs, but there are consultants you will work with who you know are trustworthy and will sign stuff. There are consultants you will work with who will talk a good game about signing forms off and then not sign them. And as a group, it's important you're aware of who they are. And that sounds slightly cynical. But I think mm. as someone who's gone through IMT and had lots of heartbreak from doing great educational opportunities with consultants to then not have the form signed at the end of it, this is a transaction, an educational transaction. We do the education, but I need the portfolio bit to demonstrate that. Mm. And some consultants still see that everything is just on their end. I do my education, I walk away. The portfolio is how we are all assessed. So that's one of mm. the horror stories of how ACATs can potentially work out. And that's why when I do ACATs with uh, juniors now, even though my, our mind can't be on the same level as the consultant's ACATs, I will always say, you tell me which patients you've seen, I will go and verify your plans. You do not need to stay here. Because being there to talk about a patient benefits the consultant. It doesn't really benefit the trainee to the same extent. Bit of a horror story. I'm not saying, I'm not going to say who that was because I'm still very upset and frustrated about that now, even 12 months after the fact. But that's the reality of what was of some of the bad practice that does go on with, with ACATs. So make sure you know which consultants are good at it. Talk about it as a group IMT. Yeah, I think having highlighting as like colleagues about which um, consultants are good at filling in forms. I've I've done that like going from a block to the next block, asking the people that have just been on it and you letting them know. You know, it's just all mm. about sharing that knowledge, isn't it? And one of the really sad, you know, to come back in again, one of the really sad points is how that affects that consultant a bit outside the scope of what we're talking about. But if you're a consultant or a registrar that signs lots of forms, I can't remember how many I got up to last year, but I think I did something in, something in the region of about 200 Horus forms last year because I'm someone that cares about that. And some of my colleagues don't have a login to Horus because they just don't do them. And there's a, a really sad effect of some of the consultants that don't want to get involved in education become a bit difficult to deal with, therefore don't have to. And the consultants who are great at education, I can think of lots of examples in our hospital, Miriam, yeah. that, that do, and they end up with more work because of it. 
Mm-hmm. So at the same time, being really receptive and thankful to them, having a really nice thank you from someone when I've sat down and gone through some difficult educational content is what sells that whole thing to me. So when someone is willing, you identify as a body, a consultant who is really good for education, just make sure you keep saying thank you every time and don't abuse it. That doesn't generally happen. <laughs> and I think it, it hopefully will go down the line, won't it? As in like, you know, you provide these great educational experiences and you'll encourage others to do the same. And then in the next few years that they'll be doing it for the younger, younger, that's not the right word. Um, the next generation. You know, but, the next but that's it. Generation. You know, we are all duty bound to provide education. And I think that's one of the things that sometimes we forget. It's part of the job. I wanted a good opportunity as an internal medicine trainee. I didn't get it, but it's my duty to try and make sure the next group of people do so that's that's why i'm motivated in doing the job that i do but anyway that's talking about something entirely entirely separate but let's get back to opcats that's a fun discussion let's Uh, go back to opcats the opcat so full disclosure so obviously i'm imt1 i am yet to do an opcat so chloe mark any any feedback or advice would be you know very much very appreciated I think unless you're regularly working with a consultant in a clinical setting, it's going to be quite difficult to achieve in like an outpatient clinic setting. I think some of the ones that I did last year for my portfolio were all done in like same day emergency care services. One was done in SDEC and one was done in RIC. I just kind of told them, the consultants, that I this is what I need to do and I said, would you be able to fill it in? It's the same kind of form as an ACAT. It's just in an outpatient setting. Um, but I don't really, I think, I think if you're regularly trying to maybe seeing your supervisor in a clinic, that may be a good time to do it as well. I don't know. I think, I think regularity might be your best bet here because I don't really know otherwise. But Mark, have you got any other suggestions? Well, I think the, the addition of OPCAT was, a management response with a lack of understanding of how things actually are happening at the moment. And in reality, what you explain there, Chloe, was something I'd have done an ACAT for when yeah. I was an IMT1. Well, and it's, I did it's, do ACAT for that same situation, yeah. and it was more of a tick box exercise in that I knew it counted as an outpatient setting. But originally, because we were only told that OPCATs were needed halfway through the year it was like you know so some of my ACATs from earlier in the year were the exact same situations so I think it's the the challenge of OPCATs as you say quite rightly is consistent clinic presence in a certain environment which is not the reality of of NHS practice at the moment for IMTs so it's a difficult expectation I think at the same time most people who are switched on to the challenges of IMT appreciate that I think what you'll find is that this will be something that most trainees will struggle with and will be an issue ARCP. I'd be surprised if it isn't, quite frankly. In terms of how you go about it, because in reality, as a trainee, that's all that really matters to you. It's finding a clinic that has good, consistent presence that you can be in regularly. And one of the things to mention about this is that OPCATs can be clinics that are not clinics by convention as we would normally think about them. So one of the examples of this would be doing a cardioversion clinic. Mm. Technically, that's an outpatient procedure list, so I would count that as being a clinic. Cardioversion, is it a dedicated clinic? As I would think about it, it's not really a clinic, but it's something that would count for that type of interaction because there's management before and after. At the same time, there are nurse-led clinics that are more consistently available 
which are options as well. But it is a real challenge. It's about finding a consultant you get on with and trying to get to that clinic more than once. You can mm-hmm. split the opcat over multiple sessions, but that, again, assumes that you are regularly going to be in a certain environment. And another uh, example I will give for most trusts, there will be a plural clinic. There will be outpatient procedure clinics that are quite good for that because they run consistently, and there's also a benefit to you going from a procedural perspective. So a plural clinic was one of my opcats. And in reality, I was going there for the plural aspiration and plural drainage. I wasn't going there for the clinic management. But in reality, it all counts as the same metric. So there is that way around it. But this is going to be a real challenge for people. And you need to identify the clinics. And again, we talked about as a group of internal medicine trainees, identifying which consultants and which clinics are good for this. There will be some. I'm sure in Airedale there are some. I'm very sure in Bradford there will be some. But getting yourself there consistently would then be the next challenge. And having a consultant event signs the form. Yeah. And I think the difficulty is in knowing where that stuff is and where when when it's happening. I think there's just no there's no clear structure, is there, or knowledge of when these things run, I don't think that helps us out. I think it's a lot of really hard graft for for the IMT trainees to try and find the clinics and then you have to experience it and then you realise, oh, it's not quite what I thought it was going to be. They're not as receptive. I'm not as involved as I was hoping to be. Or they don't fill in your forms and then you're back to square one again and you've lost your clinic session and you're now back on the ward, you're back on call. And it's like, it just seems challenging <laughs> it is it, and this is you know I, i'm not particularly happy with the involvement of opcats i think it it assumes something that isn't currently going on mm. but in reality that's it's there on your arcp you have to think of a way around it and that can be through SDEC style clinics so acu if you're in airedale i'm sure yeah. there's similar systems up in bradford um there are systems to deal with that but in reality, you're going to have to have a bit of a think as a group about which clinics could provide that type of opportunity. It's clinics that are normally quick, where it's reviewing patients, which is why ACU or SDEX are quite good, because that's normally what they what they chiefly focus on. But that's where procedural clinics are good too, reasonably quick in and outs that you can see with a certain degree of independence. But it is a challenge. And I'm not sure how each area is going to deal with it. It will be a little bit based on your own local pressures. I know that up in Harrogate, for me, we had a clinic list that we would operate and we would share out so that we knew who was doing what clinic and where. But in reality, we didn't feedback how useful that was in terms of getting your educational sign-offs done. So mm-hmm. this, is a, this is a tricky area, and this is something that's going to be hard to navigate, and I think will be sticking point for quite a few people, because getting to clinic is difficult enough. Getting yeah. to a good clinic and doing a good clinic experience is even harder, and it's not the reality of the NHS as it stands. Being as we're talking about clinics, um, I think we should probably move on to that. Nice segue. Um, <laughs> Lovely. So- you, you can podcast more often. You, you've absolutely <laughs> nailed it. Well done. Thank you. Quick update on what has changed in terms of um, clinics. So the old IMT curriculum, um, I say old, um, there was an updated version from 2019 to 2023. Um, So I'm sure everybody will know that there was a minimum of 20 outpatient clinics needed um, per year, um, with a total of 80 outpatient clinics in total for IMT3. On the 2023 update, that seems to have 
I guess they've maybe not necessarily watered it down, but it, it's less of a strict number. However, they do very specifically say that we should aim for those original numbers, um, but they haven't actually on the update specified a number. So I think all that will basically mean is, you know, don't run around like a headless chicken if you're on 79 and you were, you know, needing 80 by the end of the year. Just to quickly mention, I think different hospitals do it differently. At Airedale, I'm extremely lucky and then I get set SDT days um, where I can use those basically to go in and I'm not rotated onto the main rotor, which means I'm not expected to be on the wards anywhere. So I can go to clinics. I can guarantee I will be able to have time to go to clinics. Like a real trainee. Like a real trainee, yes. yes. Um, I'm not sure that happens everywhere. Chloe, what's your experience of that? So it, it does now happen at Bradford. Um, this was changed in August. It hadn't been done previously. Um, so we do now get set SDT days. We get essentially, I think, the bare minimum. Um, they're not even called SDT days. They're literally like clinic days. And we get the bare minimum. I think we get four per rotation. Gosh, okay, that's low. Um, yeah, and there to get to clinic. Uh, the difficulty that we also have is that at Bradford, hardly any clinics run at Bradford. They're all at the satellite centres, which okay. are around. So we have to then, which is fine when you're on your, you plan the day, but also it's just like contacting a consultant and hearing back, yes, I can go to your clinic. It, it, it takes time and process. It's not, you need to specifically email the consultant and be like, please, can I attend your Thursday morning clinic? And the next and one day, go, you're get an opcat in that setting. So that's, you know, yeah. going back to the opcat thing. How do you ever operate and get a, you know, um, decent clinical education out of that? And, yeah, and then sometimes they'll reply and be like, no, I've got no, we've got no space. We've got, like, fourth-year, fifth-year medical students. There's not enough space for an IMT trainee. And then I'm back trying to find another clinic to have in that morning because someone else has agreed to have me at, St. Luke's on the afternoon, but I don't want to be traveling cross site from Eccles Hill to mm. St. Luke's, you know, because it just takes an, another hour of driving and then I'm not actually getting any of the clinical experience that I need. Um, but, you know, it's better now that they're rotated wrote it in because previously to that, I think they weren't. And therefore, how were they ever getting to clinic is the question that I have. Um, but luckily that has now changed. But it does mean that obviously when you're bored, and you're like, oh, it's a good opportunity to maybe get an extra bit of tuck clinic time. It's not as easy to achieve because you physically have to leave yeah, the hospital. That, that sounds incredibly difficult, Chloe. That's <laughs> how good I had it at Airedale. So, yeah, thank you, Airedale. <laughs> um, Mark, how did you find it? Did you have clinic days? So, generally speaking, yes, we did. But there was a little bit of if your ward had above minimum staffing, that was your opportunity to escape and go to clinic. 80 was a very hard number to get to of decent clinic experience. In reality, if you look at my portfolio, half of that is SDEC, which I, I could be rostered on to. So I would ask to go to SDEC because they needed a tier two or senior house officer minimum level of doctor so I could discharge independently. And in reality, I found that work reasonably easy. So that's how I got a majority of my clinics. I had some really good clinic opportunities. It got better at Leeds for me. Leeds was better than working outside of district general hospitals because it was more scheduled. But the challenges mm -hmm. that Chloe talks about are very right because you may be aware you've got an SDT day coming up. You need to find that clinic and make sure you can sit in it. And 
that consistency then of actually getting further sign-offs from it is, is even more challenging. So I'm happy they've not gone for a strict number. In reality, it looks like you're still going to have to try and get somewhere around the order of 80 clinics. And if you've only got four STT days of rotation, in reality, what does that mean? It means you're potentially getting up to maybe 25 if yeah. you're lucky. And that's the problem is that even with a, a scheduled, that's assuming you get two clinics on the same day, mm-hmm. which can be challenging if you're dealing with a lot of satellite clinics. The other thing that's changing is a lot of these clinics now are telephone clinics where the educational benefit's really poor. And actually, I, I would say that attending a face-to-face neurology clinic for Parkinson's first point diagnosis is way more useful than sitting in a endocrine TSH follow-up telephone clinic where all you're going to hear is your TSH has gone down great. That's the reality of, of how clinics are being done these days because we're trying to reduce the, the burden on patients and trying to improve our efficiency. I, tend to I, think that's, I think that's the really sad bit about it as well, that it has a potential to be a really good educational opportunity mm-hmm. um, for IMT trainees where you're going to see really good signs and cases and patients that you may not see in the acute setting all the time or you might see, you know, once in a few months. And yet it's actually, for me, getting to access to that Parkinson's clinic that you mentioned seems like such a a far away dream because it, the hoops that I have to jump through just to even find out when it's running, who's running it, is it something that I can actually go to? Is that, that's what I think is the really hard bit about it. That you fit, and then you end up, like you said, just sitting in on a telephone clinic because you need the numbers, numbers. and therefore, and then you become a bit demotivated. And you know, it's where having a good trainee group really helps. So if you guys identify opportunities with consultants that are really valuable opportunities sharing that information really helps and we got to a point where we knew which clinics were good we even knew which which particular sessions with certain consultants were more valuable you share that information it does mean that as we talked about there's going to be an educational burden on a certain consultant who's providing that opportunity but that's kind of what this is about if there's a good opportunity it's taking use of it and getting the most out of those opportunities that that's where the fixed number becomes a bit irrelevant. And I know there is there's efforts within different trusts around West Yorkshire to improve the ability of trainees to attend telephone clinics in the sense of having two lines so you can listen to the conversation in an easy way. With virtual clinics, there's a an opportunity to attend a virtual clinic remotely. So essentially you're sitting in on a telephone call happening over Skype. But these are the kind of things that you can potentially do. Because even seeing how people consult and seeing how certain doctors, what the information they want, you do learn even out of the most benign of clinics, you can learn useful tips. I used to find, and I still find now, the most useful bit of the clinic is often talking to the consultant about the case afterwards. Because you know you've got their dedicated time. You can ask them some really specific questions and the best opportunities I had with the consultants who I was with was normally about five minutes after the patients walked out where we talk about all the details of the case. But that's not the numbers, which is ultimately what you're chasing after. And hopefully by not going for a super strict number, I never got up to 80. Is the other thing I should say, I think I ended up on 78, um, thanks to breaking my hand in a cricket-related incident. So I couldn't attend... I couldn't go to hospital, so I couldn't attend the clinics. But that was the reality. I, I got near, 
and they countered that. So I think that's probably part of the of the reason why. But it's about experience as well. And you can get your CBDs and mini cases from those opportunities as well. That's something else to mention. You can go and attend a clinic and get a case-based discussion from a clinic reasonably easy, particularly if your rapport with a consultant is good. So they can be really valuable in terms of sneaking out a couple of, sneaking your opcat, getting a, a cheeky CBD done. They can be really valuable opportunities. Yeah, I think it, it definitely is tricky to try and get up to those numbers, and um, particularly, Chloe, as, as you mentioned, if you don't have a huge amount of dedicated time. And again, there's going to be an element of having to sort of work around those. But those of you who are lucky like me, who, who actually do get a decent amount of time, then yeah. And we have to fight, do interventions, we have to fight for that at Airedale. You okay. know, there's a lot of work goes on behind the scenes to free you guys up for that. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one of the one of the benefits is STT time is mandated by the deanery, but is always a fight because yeah. there is always someone from finances bearing down on the doctor's time. Even if, it, even if it's not that well utilised in general, SDT is hard won and easily, easily lost. So it's something we have to keep proving the benefit of. Well, it's definitely something that I appreciate a huge, yeah. a huge amount. You know, it, w- it would it would be very difficult. Um, I think I've managed to get off the wards maybe once to go to a clinic based on our staffing level. So I think without those SDT slots, um, I would definitely be in trouble for clinics. We haven't got enough doctors. That's a problem. That is <laughs> we need more doctors. But anyway, let's not get too uh, let's not get political <laughs> on this podcast. <laughs> Um, okay, so moving on to our next section. Um, so MRCP, that old chestnut. Um, oh, we talked about we talked about pieces. Yes. Thank you for listening to the Airwave. We hope you enjoyed our podcast and learned something new. If you like what you heard, please consider subscribing to our podcast on your favourite platform, and look out for our content on YouTube. We'll be uploading part two in due course.